Uh, Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Again, that's the the last book in the Old Testament. Not the last written, but the last one in our our Bibles. We're going to read actually the last verse of of 17 down through verse 5 of chapter 3. If you are able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, Your Word, and in our hearts. Use it uh, to point us to Christ, uh, to grow us, to uh, renew us in the whole man after the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps uh, some of you who uh, know Handel's Messiah were singing as we're reading that. It's hard for me sometimes to read that Passage and there's certain passages in, in Handel's Messiah that I, I the, the music's that and I really want to sing, um, but for your sake I don't. Um, uh, September 23rd, 1992, U2 played a concert at Williams Bryce Stadium in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, I made the drive from Clemson with a couple of friends. Um, to, to catch them there. But this has nothing to do with me going to see you 2 in concert. Uh, after the concert, a group of girls went down to uh, Five Points. It's a little section in Columbia where uh, college students, young adults kind of hang out. There's several bars and pubs and whatnot down that way. Um, but that was the last time anyone has ever seen Dale Dinwiddie. Uh, Dale was, uh, I, I knew Dale. We went to school together. She's was two years older than me. Uh, we rode the bus together to school. Uh, she and a group of friends, uh, most of whom I knew, some of whom were sort of friends of mine, went down to Five Points after the concert. And evidently, multiple people thought she was in the other car. Um, and then by the time they realized it, She's nowhere to be found. 
to this day, 26 plus years later, there's absolutely nothing. It's like she vanished into thin air. Every time I hear, even now, just recently, I saw in the news, a, a body was found. The first thought in my head, have they found Dale Dinwiddie? Could you imagine... I mean, I was an acquaintance. I wasn't a friend. We rode the bus together. We're different ages. You know, that was kind of it. If I think things like that, you would totally understand if her parents are maybe even a little angry at God for the lack of justice. There's no answer. There's no... There's no solution. There's no, we have no idea where our daughter is. We have no idea what happened to her. We have no idea where she ended up. We know abs, I mean, literally just vanished off the face of the earth. You wouldn't blame them at all if they complained to God, is there no justice in this world? We watch the news. We watch the events unfold around the globe. And we watch as the, the seemingly wicked prosper. And while God's righteous people don't. Is there justice in the world? That's on the minds of the people in Malachi's day. That's on the, the hearts and minds of the people in Israel 450, 460 years or so before the time of Christ. They, they wonder where justice is. Now they're, they're dealing with various forms of, of oppression, of um, more like troublemakers around them. Uh, in fact, in just a few years, they'll be rebuilding a wall and, and building one-handed so they can keep one hand on a sword at the ready They've spent um, 70 years or so in, in Babylon, in exile, and now Babylon's been defeated, but Persia has sort of let them go home and, and they wonder where is justice. But they have another concern, you'll notice in verse 17. Not only are they looking for justice, but you can imagine if you, if you watch as the wicked prosper, You wonder, maybe I've got good and evil reversed. Maybe I've got them backwards. Because clearly God is not opposed to those who are doing wicked, evil things in this world. He's clearly not opposed to their... Their actions, their behavior, the things they, they say and, and believe and live out. And that's kind of the language in verse 17. Uh, everyone who does evil, the people are arguing or complaining or saying that everyone who does evil is actually good in God's eyes. And He must delight in them. You and I understand the struggle. Abortion is legal. And now New York and Virginia have, have said, well, I'll see your abortion. I'll take it one step Further, They've pushed the agenda yet uh, further. There's been uh, racial violence in recent years. Violence that was supposed to go away with laws we passed decades 
ago. Children are, are raised in abject poverty because their parents just don't care. They just don't love them. They just don't care for them in any way, shape, or form. They're treated with more neglect than anything else. The list goes on and on. Things that God calls evil in His Word run rampant in our culture and we wonder, maybe God actually likes these people. Maybe, maybe I've got good and evil. Maybe I've got good and wickedness reversed. Maybe I've got them wrong. You remember Malachi is written, it's a series of disputations. It's a series of, of um, sort of conversations between God and His people. They typically start with God making a statement. The, the people respond with a question or He anticipates their question. And then he uh, lays the case out before them. There, there are charges against uh, the people of God in the form of sort of statement, question from the people, and then the answer from God. The first one starts, I have loved you. And that sure sounds awfully encouraging. And of course it lends itself to, but the people have let their circumstances say God doesn't love you. That would be a whole lot better. I'd much rather hear I have loved you than you have wearied the Lord with your words. That, that's, that's not at all comforting. That's not at all encouraging. Maybe you're tempted to think, well, they've, they've been praying. They've been praying for deliverance. They've been praying for God's righteous rule and reign in their world. And God's tired of listening to their prayers. That's not it at all. You need to understand, God never, ever, ever rebukes anyone, chastises anyone for praying too much. That never happens. That never, ever comes up. In fact, for that matter, in the New Testament, God commands us to pray without ceasing. That's not the command of someone who gets tired of listening to you speak. The problem is their lack of trust. The problem is they don't trust God. At the beginning of the book, they didn't believe God loved them. God says, I have loved you. And the reason He says that is because they don't think He does. They think clearly our circumstances prove that He doesn't love us. They bring lame, blind, blemished sacrifices because not even really sure that's a big deal to God anyway. I mean, it's, a, it's an offering. I'm giving Him something. It's better than nothing. I don't think it really matters to God one way or another. And here, he, they weary Him with their words because they're saying to Him, we don't think You're coming. We don't think You care. We don't think you really want to bring justice in the world. God must actually be on the side of the wicked. Maybe you've thought this. You know people who have, have, who have thought this and have said this out loud. The argument goes something like, well, if God is loving and powerful, then He wouldn't want uh, tornadoes, and murders to exist. 
Tornadoes and murders exist. Therefore, God doesn't. Therefore, the God you claim to know and love doesn't exist. That's the argument. It's basically, well, clearly God doesn't exist because tornadoes and murders do. That's in essence what the people are thinking. The apparent absence of justice, the appearance that God is actually on the side of the wicked, isn't something that they alone wrestle with. We struggle with the same thing. And so God in response points in verse 1 to one event. He holds as, as evidence for His commitment to justice. As evidence for His concern for His righteous rule in His world. He points to one day, one event, one person. Notice in verse 1, I'm going to send a messenger and he's going to prepare the way before me. And then the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Enter Handel. Malachi sees John the Baptist. And he sees Jesus. He sees a a royal herald going before the coming king, announcing, here comes the king. The king is on his way. The king is coming into his people. He's coming into his nation. He's coming to be with his people. The king is not that far behind me. And the language in some ways implies that this really isn't that far off in the distant future. Of course, it's 450 or so years before Christ. It's 450, 460 B.C.-ish. Somewhere in there, we're not entirely certain. You do realize that soon doesn't mean to God what it means to you. Soon to us, I mean a few months, is a stretch. When we use the word soon... Three or four months, that's kind of the outset. God's soon. I'm coming. I'm going to send my messenger and he's going to go and and prepare the way for me. And when the Lord comes, he's going to come suddenly, we're told there in verse 1. God's soon is not our soon. Our soon is not God's soon we would do well to to remember that things don't happen in our time frame things don't happen in according to our clocks and our calendars and so this royal herald john the baptist comes and prepares the way for for christ for the lord who's going to suddenly come into his temple I don't know if you've ever um, paid attention to the way you think about justice. My guess is this isn't something you spend tons of time on. But, but if you were to sort of back up a little bit and examine you examining justice, 
it's always something that somebody else needs. Right? We're always calling down justice because there's somebody out there who's guilty. There's somebody out there who's done something they shouldn't have and they need to be brought to justice. They are always the ones in need of of justice. Israel is thinking the same thing. They're looking around at the people around them and they're thinking, well, the people that oppose us, our enemies, hey God, you need to go and zap those people. It's almost this notion of, well, I'm going to keep God as this big giant um, sort of service dog, this big giant protection dog. And when I'm attacked, he's going to go and attack the people that attack me. And I'll keep him on his leash and chain because as long as people are being nice, it's not that big a deal. But as soon as people attack me, we start going, God, you should go get those people. That was... Part of the struggle the Pharisees had when Jesus came. There's always some opposing, oppressive government people out there, some body out there who opposes God's people. And for the Pharisees, it was Rome. And they figured this Messiah must come in and ride in on a big, giant, muscular, white stallion dressed in armor with his big giant sword drawn, lopping off the heads of Caesar and the Roman soldiers. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected. They didn't didn't expect a donkey and a basin and a towel. The Israelites are convinced God must come sooner or later and destroy our enemies. Now, we could have, I didn't, we could have a few minutes ago, we could have used as, a, as an affirmation of faith, we could have used um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, um, that, that's questions and answers. It's a way to learn truth by asking and answering questions. That's all a catechism is. Question number 26 asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer comes back, well, He subdues us to Himself. He rules and defends us. And He restrains and conquers all His and our enemies. We as God's covenant people share enemies with Jesus. But it doesn't always work the way we think it ought to work. We want to be ready to say, well, that guy was mean to me. God, sick him. You know, I I joke with people. Enough of you have been in my house. I joke with people when... You come to my door and Jasper barks and jumps and hits you with his big giant tail. I say sick him. He has no idea what that means. He doesn't, he doesn't know. That, that means hit him again with your tail in his mind, I guess. We have this notion that we can keep God handy to accomplish sort of our earthly desires for us and solve those problems. If I go to church today, then my interview tomorrow will go well. If I get up in the morning and actually read my Bible, then maybe that bully at school or that know-it-all kind of bully guy at work won't bother me, won't cause me trouble. That's essentially a form of sorcery, by the way, verse 5. 
It's, it's using God as a means to accomplish our own personal advancement and protection. It should be true that those who oppose Christ are our enemies. But we may not be delivered from them the way we think we should be. The truth is, we have three enemies. We have at least three. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They all want nothing more than for you to rebel against Christ. Those are the enemies we should be seeking deliverance from. Those are the people we should be seeking to, to for, for deliverance from. I hope you sort of um, understood Malachi's question or God's question, Handel's question. Wait, if the Lord's going to suddenly show up in His temple, who can endure that? Who may abide the day of His coming? Who's going to be able to, to stand when Christ comes? When we recognize our cosmic treason, when we truly understand our sin, when we truly recognize that, that we are guilty, that it's not just everyone out there against whom justice must come, but quite honestly, I'm guilty and I need justice brought against me. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden you catch out of the corner of your eye blue lights. You notice everyone in that moment feels guilty. You, you might know for a fact You've set speed limit 70. My cruise control set on 70. I'm not doing anything. 10 and 2. I used my turn signal to change lanes back there. I know for a fact I haven't done anything wrong. Blue lights pop up in your rearview mirror. You're on your brake faster than you can say, what's that? When blue lights show up, everyone's guilty. Have you noticed how everyone is the exact opposite before God? I'm not guilty. Now, the people down the row from me might be. The people in my house might be. My next door neighbor probably is. That dude I work with who's kind of mean, I know for a fact he's guilty. But I'm, everybody's innocent in their minds before God. Why does nobody react the way we do when we see the blue lights? Because when the Lord comes, verses 2 and 3, He comes um, as fire. Now, it's, it's one event. I mean, it's, it's one. He's looking ahead to sort of the, the coming of the Lord when He will come into His temple suddenly. And notice, it accomplishes two different purposes Fire is good for gold. 
It's not good for dross. Fire is good for the pure. It is not good for the impure. He comes to refine like silver or gold and silver to be boiled, heated, melted down so that the impurities can be scooped up and thrown aside. Heat, fire, it's, it's good for gold. It's good for the pure. It's not good for the impure. And, and that's the picture here in verses 2 through 5. The covenant community will be refined, purified by the arrival of the Lord. He comes to, to root out all that doesn't belong, all that's unnecessary, all that's impure, all that's worthless. Notice there's the language of refining. Who can endure His day? Who can stand when He appears? Verse 2, He's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He envisions God's covenant community being refined, being purified. The world, the flesh, the devil, they're our enemies. Sin is our enemy. And Jesus is at work in us now, refining us, purifying us. Rooting out sin in our lives. The aim, of course, is ultimately, finally, to purge us from the very presence and effects of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's what He's come to accomplish. Of course, verse 5, there are also those for whom His arrival means judgment. There are those for whom the arrival of the King means not the fire of purification, but the fire of, of judgment. Sorcerers, adulterers, oppressors of hired workers, of widows, and of fatherless. Those who mistreat sojourners. Those who have no fear of God. It sure would be nice if we could take that list and sort of yell over the fence at other people and go, yeah, all y'all. God's coming to, to take care of all you sorcerers and adulterers and liars and, and mistreaters of people out there. And then you realize... We're those things. We use God for our own sort of sorcery. We're the ones who misuse our tongues. We're the, the ones who, who look inappropriately at someone who's not our spouse. We're the ones who mistreat others. We're guilty. We're just as guilty as everyone else. So what's our hope? What what? Who then can stand to ask His question? Because that sure sounds like nobody's going to stand. That sure sounds like everybody's a goner when Christ comes. So what distinguishes Judah and Jerusalem to use the terms in verse 4? Well, it's the love of God from chapter 1. 
those whom he loves, those whom he has on whom he has set his affections. That's Judah. That's Jerusalem. Those are God's people. Those on whom Christ has set his affections. Those whom Christ loves are distinguished not by our obedience, but by his mercy and grace. Not by our worth, not by our goodness, but by his love. If you want to escape judgment, you want to stand when he comes, you want to endure under the, the fire of, of, of refinement rather than judgment. Run to Christ. Find forgiveness there. Run to the cross. Admit, confess your sin. Trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Notice, Judah and Jerusalem, they're not free from fire. I mean, it's a different purpose, but it's still fire. I don't know about you, but the fire that you use to cook food the fire you use to roast s'mores is the exact same fire that will burn down your house if you're not careful. It's hot. It's painful. It's not pleasant. It can be difficult. It, it might even hurt you. But it has a different aim. It has a different purpose. It has your holiness, your sanctification, your purification in mind. One fire, two purposes. The purification of some and the judgment of others. The arrival of the King serves both purposes. The purification of some and the judgment of others. You know, the, the reality is, I'm not sure how clearly Malachi could see this. You know how it is sometimes you're, you're driving near mountains. You, you see mountains sort of off in the distance and, and you can't always tell, are those two mountain peaks right beside each other or is there actually a distance between them? You can't quite always tell. You and I are actually waiting for the king. In our day, we still are, not still, we're again waiting for the king. He's come once. He's coming back again. And when He does, it will be for the full and final purification of His people and for the full and final judgment of all who oppose Him. We're told He's going to come just as suddenly then as He did before. The word suddenly. He will, you know, will suddenly come to His temple. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. He's going to come... It doesn't mean you're going to get robbed. It doesn't mean he's going to be a thief. It means if you knew when a thief was going to break into your house at night, you'd be sitting there waiting on him. That's the image. You don't know when a thief is coming. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a very good thief, would he? Jesus is going to come. And He's going to come just as surely as He has come the first time. He's going to come just as suddenly as He has the first time. And what you and I think of as a delay 
is no delay at all. We're waiting. And we're watching the world around us thinking, is there no justice? Well, the reality is we have the exact same promise. Christ is coming back. And when He does, He will bring judgment on His enemies. And He will bring full and final restoration to His people. So how will you react to that delay? Some some will sit and grumble. Some will complain that there's no justice. Some, the, they, they will see the world around them and they will want nothing more than to punt the faith. They will decide, surely Jesus isn't coming back. They prove a distrust of God's Word which promises a sure and certain and sudden return of Christ. You know, the reality is the certainty of Christ's return should actually fuel our growth in grace. It should because we're being refined, because we're, we're the impurities of the world, the flesh, and the devil, because of the enemies that are within us. It, that should actually, the promise, the certainty of His return should actually fuel our growth in grace. It should drive us to seek God's holiness and righteousness. To use all the means of God's appointment, the, the ordinary means of grace, the Word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship with other believers, that we too might grow in holiness. It should fuel our evangelism. It, it should drive us to be sure and certain that if Christ returns and He's going to bring judgment on the wicked, it should fuel evangelism. It should drive our hearts to say, I want as few people to face that judgment as, as humanly possible. As much as I can affect it, I want to see as few people as, as possible face that judgment. Better the, the fire and pain of purification. The writer of Hebrews tells us, God says those whom He loves, He chastens to root out sin in our lives, to purify us more and more. May we as Grace Covenant Church, as God's people, be encouraged all the more to long for Christ's return when we can be fully and finally and completely rid of the world, the flesh, and the devil forever. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You for the promise of the arrival, the second arrival of our King. And we pray that You would grant us the faith and endurance that our, the, that our eyes wouldn't see this world and doubt the one that is to come. That our eyes wouldn't be so caught up in what we see here and now and neglect that which You assure us in Your Word. Father, we, we hesitate to pray, purify us, because we know that's not always comfortable. We know that's not always easy. And so grant us the grace to want Your honor and glory enough to pray, purify us. And Father, we pray that as, 
as we anticipate the return of Christ, You would drive us to evangelism. You would drive us to seek the lost, to gather them as far as it depends on us that they might join us when Christ returns rather than face judgment. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.